Today's reading is challenging, a bit of a head-scratcher, and it may leave you, like it did me, with a what or a huh in your mind. But it is always a privilege to read scripture, all of scripture, any scripture. So remain standing as I read today's message from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one thing is for sure. We're going to have plenty to talk about at the church picnic today. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you, so good to be with you, good to have you here uh, today as we look at this text from God's Word. My name is Jonathan Mosier. It's my privilege and my honor to be able to open up the Word of God with you and for you this morning. And so if you're not already there, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Well, as we talked about at the very beginning uh, of our series in Timothy, one of the things that we do as we gather each week as Disciples Church is we pick a book of the Bible and we begin to work our way through it, starting at the beginning, ending at the end. And the reason that we do that is because it, it, it forbids us from just riding our own hobby horses. It forces us to address issues that may be uncomfortable, that may be difficult, that may be challenging for us, but are nonetheless necessary. And so whether or not you realize it, uh, in responding to the scripture reading this morning, you actually just affirmed something that is central to the faith. And what I mean by that is this. One of the things that we do each week when we gather together after the reading of scripture is we say together, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And in doing so, we are affirming together as the church that what we just heard are not man's opinions or man's words or even a religious philosophy, but that we actually have the inspired and inerrant word of God himself. That we have the living word of God that cuts to the division of soul and spirit, the word that is greater, greater than, not subservient to, our culture, or any culture in which people may live. There are times when we gather where the word functions as a balm to our soul, where we walk away comforted, encouraged, and there are also times when the scripture grates on our sensibilities. But regardless of what we feel on any given week, we have a responsibility to order our lives after what we read in God's word. 
And so as we come to a text today that is neither politically correct nor culturally popular, it's vital for us to first trust that what God gives us here is for our joy and ultimately for his glory as well. And that there certainly must be deep, if not difficult, truths that are worth teasing out in this text. And so as we go through this sermon, I'll just admit to you that this week was a bit of a challenge for me trying to think through how to talk about these things and how to explain these things and how to work my way through these things. And so you may see me a bit more in my notes than usual because I think the wording of these things is important. Whenever we touch on hot buttons within culture, we need to be very clear as to what it is that we're saying. Well, last week we ended by looking at verse 8 where, where Paul writes and says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And we address the idea that by saying this, uh, Paul is actually addressing the fact that false teachers had come into the church, they had begun to misuse the law and genealogies, they'd begun to formulate doctrines that were contrary to the scripture and contrary to the gospel, and tensions within the church had risen to the point where the Ephesian men were refusing to even pray with one another. Think about that. They would not pray with or for one another because there were these doctrinal differences and there was so much animosity between them. That the false teaching in Ephesus had led to so much tension that it was just as likely that these men would break into a fistfight as they would break into praise. So Paul's interaction to the men is this, put aside your anger and put aside your quarreling and lift your hands to pray rather than fight. He's saying don't go out seeking blood when you claim to be washed by the blood. Because if you abuse the gathering of the church as a means to consolidate your own power or influence or punish your detractors, you harm the body. You hurt brothers and sisters. You hurt the reputation of the church. You hurt the name of Jesus, and you dishonor God. And now Paul, in this text, turns his attention to the women in Ephesus, and he has a lot to say to them. In fact, this conversation that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is weighted much heavier toward the women than it was the men, and there is a particular pastoral reason for that. In fact, Paul's going to give us the indication of why he's spending so much time in this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul writes this, talking about the false teachers in the church. He says, they have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Avoid such people. Now listen to this language. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak or weak-willed women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. False teaching had found a foothold among a group of women in the Ephesian church. And having gone after the false teachers already, and Paul has much more to say to them in this letter, Paul here stops for a moment to care for and to correct the women in the church who've been led astray. So Paul lays out his concern in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, and he says, look, some of these women have gone headlong into false doctrines. They've begun to live only for their own pleasure. They've started to indulge in gossip and backbiting. And in doing so, Paul says, they have begun to stray after Satan. This is strong language that Paul is using here. This isn't just a mild correction. He's actually concerned for the state of their souls. 
given the doctrines that they had begun to embrace. And so Paul wants to direct these women toward holy living and appropriate worship as a means of reminding them of the gospel and in the hopes that their lives would begin to then reflect the gospel. Now the challenge of a text like this is obvious, but the challenge is this. The path of right doctrine in this text runs between two deep caverns into which people tend to fall. Some people have tried to use texts like this as a baseball bat to demean, to control, or to otherwise undermine the value of women. And in doing so, they have explicitly violated the instruction of Scripture to treat women with respect and regard as sisters in Christ, as those who are created in the image of God, and as those who are uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit for His ministry. And so as a means of avoiding that error, others have driven into the cavern on the other side. They read this text and they believe this passage is is something to be embarrassed of and apologized for. So they try to write off this text altogether as an anachronism, as a bizarre outlier in the canon of Scripture that was never intended to be applied in any context beyond the time and location of Paul's writing. But the problem, of course, is that there is nothing in this text that would reasonably lead one to believe that. Furthermore, if we begin to put ourselves in the driver's seat of getting to assign heart motivations to the authors of the Scripture as inspired by the Holy Spirit in order to accommodate our cultural moment, we diminish the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we quickly find that there is little in Scripture to which we can still hold. See, the truth is that the Bible, not our culture, is the standard for what is right and appropriate. And the Bible, properly understood, will challenge and correct any given culture at any point in time. For us, it may be a passage like this. For an ancient culture, it might have been Paul's instruction to husbands to to love and to sacrificially care for their wives, to value them. So we need to be wise in our reading of Scripture because Paul here gives us several specific cultural illustrations that reveal important, timeless principles for how women are intended to function in their God-given roles within the church. And so look how Paul lays this out in verse 9. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now follow what's happening in this text. As the church in Ephesus was gathering, some of the women who were there had begun to be drawn away by the false teachings of the false teachers in the church. Uh, And and as they began to be kind of pulled away, they began also to dress in a way that was intended to draw attention to their bodies and to their wealth. So these women would take gold strands and pearls and jewels and they would begin to run them through their hair and ultimately put their hair up so that you couldn't help but notice them when they walked into the room. And in addition, they begin to wear clothing that was not appropriate for the occasion. And Paul doesn't exactly define what that actually is, but but we can certainly take away the understanding that their clothing was intended to catch the eye of those who were gathered together as the church. It was intended to draw admiration from other people. 
And Paul's concern for the women in this church is that they were disrupting the worship in the way that they were drawing attention to themselves. His heart for them really is that they were trying to look for approval and validation from men rather than from God. And notice that Paul's solution for this church is not that they become strange in their dress or begin to dress oddly. He doesn't tell them necessarily to be out of fashion or to wear peculiar clothes that make them look strange. No, instead, Paul says, I want you to adorn yourself with respectable apparel, verse 9, and good works, verse 10. Now, what in the world does he mean when he says adorn yourself with good works? Well, Peter writes something very similar in his first letter that actually sheds light on this. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, here's what Peter says to women. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. And the point that both Paul and Peter are going to make is this. When you come, ladies, to the gathering of the church, don't seek to draw attention or glory to yourself, but rather seek to draw glory and attention to God. And that is the principle that still applies today. The point for us in a modern context is not necessarily the braiding of hair or the putting on of pearls or gold. Those were just cultural indicators of of wealth and status. And if the point was that women shouldn't put gold and pearls in their hair, we'd probably be all set today. That's not actually Paul's primary point. The problem was that some of these women were seeking to use a time that was intended to glorify God and build up the saints to draw attention to themselves and to distract others. So Paul is saying, women, don't look for your worth in the attention of others, either by your attractiveness or by your wealth, but rather be interested in how God sees you. See, there are some who would look at a text like this and they would say, well, what I do externally doesn't actually matter because God knows my heart. And what Paul is actually saying is this, what you do externally reveals your heart. It's an indicator of what's going on internally. It's an indicator of what's motivating you and driving you and captivating your affections. In other words, both your external demeanor and your good works demonstrate what you believe. Now, how do you actually adorn yourself then in good works? Well, Paul gives us the answer in another text in the pastoral epistles. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is speaking to a group of bondservants. These are people who had sold themselves into servitude, perhaps in order to pay off a debt or in order to provide for their own families. And in speaking to these bondservants within the church, Paul writes and says this, Bondservants are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or thieving, but rather showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So understand what Paul is saying. He's saying there is actually something about the right behavior of God's people that actually has the power to prove and amplify the gospel message. That by virtue of the way we live and the things we say and the things we do, we actually have the ability to, as it were, dress up the gospel. 
Not that we're adding to it or even contributing to it, but what we're doing is we're demonstrating the attractiveness of the gospel that we believe to the point where bond servants in the book of Titus could actually beautify and adorn the gospel by demonstrating their faith through the work that they performed in these households. And Paul here is saying the same thing to women. Adorn yourself in good works. That rather than adorning your hair in order to draw attention to yourselves, adorn yourselves with good works in order to draw attention to your Savior. Let's move on to verse 11 where Paul says something that really strikes us. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now again, we need to remember this verse in context. It's easy to read this statement and to be bothered in our modern culture by the directness of the language, but what's actually happening here? Well, remember, Paul had written to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26, and here is what he stated in that text, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now what Paul says there is an amazing, amazing truth and explanation of what the gospel does in our hearts and lives. What Paul is saying is this, the gospel had provided the individual with a whole new identity. That your worth and your value was no longer wrapped up in your ethnic heritage or your family name or your gender or your socioeconomic status or anything else. The gospel declares that you have intrinsic value as someone who was created in the image of God and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And listen, the women in the Ephesian church had certainly begun to experience that. In the church, they were given a regard and a value that they had not experienced outside of the church. Outside of the church, they were viewed as lesser than. They were objectified and diminished but inside of the church, they had found whole new meaning and value. But some of the women in Ephesus began to be influenced by these false teachers and started, therefore, to denigrate the structure and authority that God had established for the proper function of the church. Some of the women there began to feel that they had the right to teach in the mixed gathering of the church in the same way that the elders did. And so Paul's solution in verse 11 is this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, because of our cultural context, our eyes jump immediately to those words, quiet and submissive. But we need to start where Paul does with the word learn. It's understandable that we would read past this, but certainly women in the first century would not have. See, the Babylonian Talmud, which was in play within the first century, gave instruction that as women and men came to the synagogue, the men were to come to the synagogue to learn, but the women were to come to hear. And one Jewish scholar of the first century, a rabbi by the name of Eliezer ben Azariah, said it this way, ideally women should not engage in fixed learning. In other words, the religious instruction of the time was that women were able to attend synagogue, but they were actively discouraged from learning from what was being taught. 
And in religious circles, this was the commonplace practice. But as Paul speaks to the congregation in Ephesus, he says to them, let the women learn. Paul is actually in this sentence affirming the equal value of women by stating unequivocally that God intends for women to learn from Scripture. And the use of the language here is similar to what Jesus says when he says, let the children come to me. He says, don't prohibit them. Don't keep them away. Women in this context are to actively be learning that the aim of the church, at least in part, is to train men and women alike to be wise and capable theologians. However, Paul is stating that there is also an expectation for how women are to learn within the gathering of the church. That they are to recognize the God-given authority of the elders of a church, and in the same way that any member is called to submit to that authority, according to Hebrews 13, likewise women are to submit to that authority and learn quietly or respectfully. Now, when we hear Paul's instruction for women to learn in all submission, we tend to bristle. But what we learn about submission biblically is that it is not a proposition of value or worth, but a proposition of order and structure. So I came across a list this week of these scriptural ideas related to submission that were incredibly helpful for me, and I want to share them with you very quickly. The Bible references, for instance, the submission of the Christians to God the Father. That's James chapter 4. The Bible references the submission of all things to the Lord Jesus. That's Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible references the submission of all Christians to one another in Ephesians chapter 5. The submission of the church family to their elders in Hebrews 13. The submission of husbands to God in the marital context in Ephesians 5. The submission of wives to their husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. And the submission of children to their parents in Ephesians chapter 5. And so even though submission is everywhere in the Bible, we tend to bristle when it is specifically applied to women and wives. Now, why is that? It's because in our cultural context, we presume that submission is an indication of a lesser status, an indication of lesser value. But keep in mind, if you would, the greatest example we have of submission in the Bible. And we find at least one example of that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, where it says this, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Now imagine this for a moment. This is Jesus Christ who is God, who exists eternally, in the glories of heaven with the worship of angels deserving of all affection and all attention. And he submits himself in this moment to the Father. And in doing so, he was no less God, no less worthy of praise, no less equal in essence with the Father, but recognized that there was a necessary submission in order that the Father might be glorified. 
See, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit submit to the Father within the context of the Trinity, not because they are lesser, but because they have a particular role in that relationship. And when you apply this idea, for instance, to the marital context, what you realize is that both the husband and the wife are imitating Jesus. The husband is imitating Jesus' love for the church. And he does that by giving himself for his wife. That he lovingly, gently, sacrificially pours out his life by serving and leading and protecting her. And the wife, likewise for her part, is imitating Jesus' submission to the Father. That she recognizes her equality with her husband in the sight of God. But she nevertheless recognizes his God-appointed role and voluntarily submits to his loving leadership. And when that actually plays out within the context of marriage, the gospel itself is put on display. And likewise, within the gathering of the church, there is a willing, voluntary submission in recognition of the order and the structure that God has established for the proper functioning of the church. Paul is writing in recognition of what we all know to be true but what our culture fights hard to undermine, that men and women are equal in value, but different in role. And Paul is going to expound on that role in verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So when Paul says she is to remain quiet, is he suggesting that a woman may never utter a word in the gathered church? And as we've demonstrated this morning, the answer is certainly not. And all you need to do in order to find evidence for that is look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, among other texts, where you find examples of women, for instance, praying within the context of the church. No, the instruction for women to remain quiet is given within the context of this phrase, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Paul is very specific in his language here, and he is, he's a specific intentionally. Um, he gives us a specific prohibition that women cannot teach or have authority over men within the context of the mixed assembly of the church. Now, each part of that instruction is vital for us to understand. And we have to view it as a whole because Paul here is not enacting a blanket ban on women teaching in any context. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, Paul's going to go out of his way to specifically encourage women to teach other younger women. Nor is he saying that women may never be in any position of authority outside of the church. The Bible, for instance, never forbids a woman from teaching a man in university or being an authority at the workplace, or leading a nation, for that matter. No, the Bible is saying that women are prohibited from the roles and responsibilities that belong to elders, namely, exercising spiritual authority and teaching men within the mixed gathering of the local church. And the basis for Paul's instruction here is vital to our understanding. This is maybe the most important thing we find in this passage because everything that Paul has said to this point is hinged on where he roots the authority for his statement. 
His view is that the local church essentially is a family and that in the same way that men are to bravely and gently and sacrificially lead their homes, called and qualified men of God are to bravely, gently, sacrificially lead the church. Now Paul's going to show his work on this. He's not just going to ask you to take his word for it. He actually gives us the authority for this from Scripture. And look where he roots this idea in verse 13. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. If you want to know where all of this is rooted, where the authority for this instruction is rooted, it's rooted right here in verse 13. So some would look at Paul's prohibition on women teaching or exercising authority or or these various things, and they would say, well, this instruction is only for the Ephesian church. It was a very particularly unique cultural moment. It doesn't have any bearing on us. But here's the major problem with that idea, and I want you to hear this because this is what you'll hear in churches all around the nation and all around the world. People dismiss Paul's instruction, believing it simply to be cultural. And the problem with that is that Paul does not root his instruction in some peculiar one-off attempt to control an issue in Ephesus. He doesn't say, well, you know, we're in the middle of this male-dominated culture and men are very important and women are very lowly and so we're going to acquiesce to that and we're going to demand that women remain silent in the church because we don't want anybody to think badly of us. And to assign that sort of attitude to Paul as some liberal interpreters of Scripture have, is to do so in contradiction to everything we know about him. I mean, this is the guy who left a powerful position within Judaism to follow Jesus. That is not something that somebody does to win a popularity contest. This is the guy who stood up to powerful religious and political leaders knowing that it might cost him his life. This is the man who was stoned for preaching the gospel, literally pushed into a ditch and having stones and boulders thrown onto his beaten and bloody body. And his response after that happens is to get up and dust himself off and go preach some more. This is Paul who was imprisoned at least three times that we know of in Scripture. Paul could not have cared less what culture thought about what the church was doing so long as they were being faithful to what God had instructed. And likewise, I would argue, it's instructive to follow the example of Jesus, to suggest that God incarnate intended for women to be pastors and elders and to teach and to hold authority over men, but was so fearful of the first century culture that he only selected men to be his disciples and apostles is slanderous. It reduces Jesus to a mere responder of culture. And Jesus never plays that role. No, Paul roots his instruction in verses 13 and 14 in the order and design of God's creation of humanity. He actually goes back to a time before the entrance of sin into the world to say that God designed men and women with particular and complementary roles. And he uses that as a standard by which men and women ought to operate within the church. Paul points back here to the creation of Adam. 
This is the first time we find in Scripture up to that point in Genesis chapter 2 where God declared something not to be good. He says of his creation, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And he finally gets to the point where he says, and man was alone, and this was not good. That there is an interdependence in the creation, uh, in the creative design of God for men and women to be dependent on one another and complementary to one another. So God created Eve out of the rib of Adam to be a helpmate, to complement a fitting partner for life. And in doing so, God gave Adam the responsibility of leading and protecting his life. And Paul points out here that the trouble came in when this order was usurped. The point of verse 14 is to say that Eve's sin in eating the fruit was both disobedience to God and a usurpation of her husband's leadership. And likewise, Adam's sin in eating the fruit was disobedience to God and an abdication of his responsibility to lead and to protect his wife. Do you understand that the sin that cast humanity into darkness was in part an abandonment of God's design for sexuality? And notice that even though it was Eve who sinned first, God held Adam responsible. That his leadership role within the context of his union with Eve was so pronounced that Paul was going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Why? because God had established man as the head of the family. So here's the question for us. If Paul is rooting his argument in Scripture, in creation itself, then can his instruction actually be a one-off for a particular church? No, by necessity, it is a timeless instruction that necessarily applies to the church today. And for us today, the desire to adjust the Bible to to our circumstances rather than our circumstances to the Bible leads us to ignore this text. And listen, ultimately it necessitates that we abandon the Bible's views of creation and sexuality altogether. Sexuality and the roles of biblical manhood and womanhood are of a piece. They cannot be pulled apart and you cannot abandon one without damaging the other. Now that sounds hyperbolic, but all you need to do is look at the example of the Episcopal Church or the Methodist Church or any one of a number of other denominations who've compromised on this perspective to see that their refusal to recognize the biblical authority on this topic has led to an abandonment of the Bible's authority on human sexuality altogether. And so finally, Paul closes this section with yet another obscure reference. Verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what in the world does that mean? It's an unusual verse, and the opinions about what it means are varied, to say the least. You can begin to look at commentaries and never come to a firm 
conclusion. But let's first lay the context before we start to answer the question. The context of, it, of, of this verse is this. It seems as though the false teachers in Ephesus were beginning to propagate the idea that childbearing, being a mother, was a lesser call for women. That somehow a woman was more important, more accepted in the sight of God, more useful if she, if she were to forgo having children. But nowhere does the Bible promote the idea that motherhood is a lesser calling. All you need to do is read Proverbs 31 and the description of the blessed woman there or the Song of Mary in Luke chapter 1 to realize that God holds women and mothers in very high regard. But what then does it mean that she will be saved through childbearing? Some people view this as a reference to Mary and the fact that Jesus was born of a woman, and that argument can carry some weight. The idea there is that Paul had just mentioned Adam and Eve in the previous verse, and that if you were to go back and read in Genesis chapter 3 as God is having this conversation with Adam and Eve, one of the things that he does is he promises that salvation is going to come through the line of Adam and Eve, that the, the promise of the Messiah is given. And in that promise, he says this, the serpent will bruise his heel, that Satan will bruise the heel of Christ, but Christ will crush the serpent's head. And so one theory is that verse 15 is just a reference to the the coming of Jesus Christ that had already happened, that salvation was provided through. But I would suggest a different interpretation. It's offered by an Anglican theologian named Henry Alford, and here's what he says about it. Alford essentially says this, you have to look at the context of Genesis chapter 2 and 3. That immediately after Adam and Eve's failure, as Paul mentioned in verse 13 and 14, God came and told Adam and Eve that from that point forward, humanity was going to experience the consequences of their sin. Adam was told that from that point forward, men would work by the sweat of their brow. In other words, physical labor from that point forward was going to hurt It was going to be frustrating, it was going to be painful, it was going to be exhausting, that the satisfaction of hard work while it's still there was going to be dampened by thorns and thistles, or we might read that in the modern context, obstructions and obstacles. And Eve, likewise, was told that from that point forward, women were going to experience the pain of childbirth, that the joy and elation of bringing a new life into the world was going to be dampened by tremendous physical pain. So when Paul says here that women will be saved through childbirth, he is not suggesting that women will be saved by childbirth. We know that because Paul talks about that incessantly. But in the words of one commentator, and I'll read them for you, I'd encourage you to listen as closely as you're able. Here's what he says. Even though many women today and in history may feel the ongoing effects of the curse in the pains of childbirth and the lifelong wounds that it may leave, I urge all our Christian sisters not to despair. God's word to you is hope, not curse. God's plan for you is salvation, not destruction. Yes, just as the man must work out his salvation through the cursed futilities and miseries of his labor, millions of women must find her salvation through the pains and miseries of childbearing. The path of salvation is the same for her as for all the saints, continuing in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, Paul's words here are a guarantee to women 
that Jesus, in fact, brings final and ultimate deliverance. That the pains and the injustice of this world met their eventual end in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus himself became a curse for us, according to Galatians 3. That Adam and Eve's sin no longer condemns those who are in Christ. And that a day is coming in which every hurt will be undone as we stand in his presence. Physical pain, disappointment, emotional letdown, mistreatment, all undone in the presence of Christ. So here's the final word to my sisters who are here today. So what are women able to do in the gathering of the church? Well, I believe and we believe here at Disciples Church, women can and should do anything other than the roles and responsibilities that belong to an elder. And our hope as a church is that this place would be one where you can find opportunities to use your various gifts and skill sets to the glory of God and to the joy of all people. Women are a necessary and important gift of a God to the church. And if you're a woman here today, our hope is that you would find a home at Disciples Church, a place in which you can learn the deep, timeless, meaningful truths of the Scripture, that you would find opportunities to teach and to train other women, perhaps to serve the body of Christ as a deacon, something we'll talk about more in the coming weeks, to train your children, if you have them, in the ways of the Lord, and thereby make a generational and eternal difference for God. We are thankful that you're here, and we value the immense contribution that you make to this body. And in a world that is in constant flux about what it believes about humanity and sexuality, we have a unique opportunity to demonstrate our union together as brothers and sisters. And we do that in part as we come to the Lord's table. When we come to the table, it is a recognition that God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. It's a recognition that he's adopted us into a new family, that he's made us into a new people, that he's given us new responsibilities and a new charge and a new home. And that in hopes that in our loving and gracious interaction with one another, we get to put the love of our Father on display. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take just a couple of minutes of silence to be with our Lord, to consider and ponder the mystery of his word and his presence. And then when the music starts, you're invited to come forward down the center aisle to receive communion. I want to draw your attention to a couple of things. One, 
We do have these cups available um, where it's kind of communion all in one. There's a wafer in there um, and there's juice in there as well. So if you're looking for kind of a one and all solution, um, something that's sanitary on that side, you are welcome to partake of that. Also want to draw your attention to the fact that the, uh, the trays that contain these cups are also the ones that contain juice. We do not have signs this morning. The, one, the, the trays that do not have these contain wine, just so that you're aware of that. And the bread is gluten-free. I never mention that. I always think to, but if you have a gluten now, allergy, just so you know, you are still able to participate uh, as well. And so what I'm going to encourage you to do is after the silence, uh, you're going to come forward, receive those elements, and return to your seats. uh, And then please wait. We're going to take those things together in just a few moments. Let's pray as we go into silence. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it challenges us. God, we even thank you for the things we're not sure we understand because we know that you have a meaning and intentionality and a purpose for those things, and that you've given us the body of the local church to work through hard conversations together. So God, soften our hearts where we want to put up defenses, smooth out the edges where we want to be confrontational and aggressive. Give us an affection for one another as true brothers and sisters through your blood. And God, as we come to your table, we remember the sacrifice that you made that enabled all of this to happen. The guarantee of our forgiveness, the assurance of our pardon, the adoption that we have in faith, and the family that we now have together. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.